I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Christopher Stinson. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Um, now, you are the lead curatorial assistant at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum, our neighbor, right? That is correct. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. It's always a pleasure to work with our neighbors across the mall. Um, what on earth is a curatorial assistant? Um, it's something that they call me because they don't know what else to call me. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm essentially a collections manager. So I look after the well-being of the collections uh, as a whole, as my cross-collections portion of my job. And I look after th- three groups of taxa in particularly uh, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. So I look after, prepare um, all the natural history specimens at the Beattie Museum and make sure that they last longer than I do. How did you get into this work? What what kind of education and background uh, skills do you have? So I've been at UBC forever. I started my undergrad here in physics, of all things. Um, but that quickly changed after lecture where somebody said and clearly you get the double integral from this and then it was not clear and so I went back to what I started as a child uh, in biology. Um, So I've got an animal biology degree from UBC. I've done a cultural resource management diploma from uh, UVic and I'm currently working on a master's uh, researching Martins at UBC again while I'm working full-time for some strange reason. Wow, wonderful. That's impressive. <laughs> now, I'm curious, do you use any, any of your physics work uh, in your your current work? No, I, I just barely started into that. I was sort of interested in it in late high school, and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go into physics. But uh, biology was always in the background. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, northwestern Ontario, and I've always been interested in the natural world. Um, I guess physics is part of the natural world, too, but the living part of the natural world. Um and so physics, although I have to move a lot of things, so I have to use levers and things, basic Newtonian physics, but uh, mostly it's biology focused. And you said you got into it because you lived in, uh, in, the, in nature yeah. <laughs> as a young person. I've always found it, found it really funny that um, someone in the conservation field like yourself, uh, in the museum sense, does the exact opposite of someone in the conservation field in a natural park, a conservation officer. Um, you arrest uh, natural processes of, of decay, uh, whereas they uh, encourage those processes to continue so the uh, life cycle can can keep going. Yeah, for sure. never really thought about it that way, but yeah. And every time I say uh, I'm like a conservator, um, it's kind of amusing that people, I, I conserve things or I have, a, uh, they think that I'm some sort of environmental activist or something like that in it. But no, no, I just look after dead things. It's an important part of museum work. uh, And it's a fascinating peek behind the curtain. I kind of wish that I would have found museum work earlier in my undergrad career. Perhaps I would have done better. Anyway. (laughs) Well, that's actually my next question. Um, I found that for most people, myself included, um, 
careers aren't a linear path. Uh, instead, there are a bunch of switchbacks and uh, turnarounds. Um, most careers are circuitous. Um, have you faced any setbacks or uh, turns in your career? Um, well, like I said, I started off wanting to be a physicist, but uh, quickly changed my mind in the first semester. Um, and uh, I hate to admit it, but I was a horrible student in my undergrad. I had no direction after that. I was like, sort of went into biology as a default, but I was looking for like a career in, in pharmacy or like engineering or something that's like a, like a total trade, a career that you can do. And for some reason, I, even though I'd been collecting things and since I was a little child and I had my own museum, I didn't even think that as a career until I actually left UBC to work for a while, save up money and went to GCIT for a bit. And then it wasn't until I came back to UBC to finish my degree when I rediscovered the museum. And uh, I found, I took a terrestrial vertebrate course uh, with Dr. Darren Irwin here at UBC and uh, found a skull during one of the surveys we had to do for it. And it happened to be a hairy woodpecker skull. And that got me in touch with the curator at the time, Rex Kenner. And he was impressed with my ability to ID it. So I started volunteering and it was right about the time we were figuring out inventories and things for the building of the BB. So it was just a couple of years before the building actually was constructed. And so I volunteered for a couple of years and then was hired part time. And it just sort of went from there. I was working at UBC housing at the time, actually. And I worked at AMB sound. If anybody remembers that from NBC, uh, retail history when you used to be able to buy CDs and things like that. <laughs> I think we're all really hard on ourselves for our undergrad past and, and misdemeanors because um, I don't think anyone's proud of <laughs> how they behaved in their undergrad looking back. <laughs> now you spend your days going through uh, cabinets and cabinets of um, wonderful things. Um, what's your favorite uh, surprise? Um, so I haven't had a surprise a good surprise actually for the past while because i pretty much know what's in most of the cabinets although i guess the herbarium still remains a mystery sometimes um but probably my favorite surprise was um i was working this was when i was volunteering actually so i had started doing a, the inventory of the mammal collections and we used to have just in the top of the biosciences building um stacked nine feet high these the old cabinets that we used to have before we got the the wonderful beady ones um and it was probably nine o'clock at night and i pulled a shelf over my head and swung it in front of me and there was the face of a giant flying squirrel that i had no idea we had in the collections and it was kind it's kind of uh scary looking its teeth were showing and it also had a wire coming out of its nose so it looked even more terrifying and it, it made me jump a little bit especially because i was out there late at night kind of dark with the old building creaking and all that sort of thing but it's one of my favorite specimens now it's a uh, red and white giant flying squirrel from southeast asia <laughs> didn't you find a freezer full of uh crocodiles or alligators at one point yeah well found isn't quite the right word but uh they were experimental animals and they were at they did end of life experiments on them and basically euthanized them. Uh, a researcher had them from when they were little and then they were not little anymore. So they were in animal care uh, at UBC, which is now called 
comparative medicine or something like that. Um, so we were asked if we wanted them for the collections. Um, and then they said, uh, well, do you want the freezer too? And we're like, sure. And then uh, they come with a truck and just unloaded a freezer with a solid block of alligators stuck into it. <laughs> um, so I had to defrost the freezer for like a week in order to actually get the alligators out of it. And then it took almost four years to prep all of them. And they were all, of course, when they're all flexible and um, you can put them in the freezer and then they freeze into interlocking barrel of monkeys kind of a scenario and you can't get them out until the entire thing is thawed. And because it's in the freezer, which is insulated, it takes forever. So yeah, it took like a, a week and I had to tip it on its side to get these all apart. Um, you had to get them out and then put them into another freezer because you don't want them to thaw so much that they begin degrading, right? So mm -hmm. it was a whole ordeal. It was, yeah. They found me because the animal care people didn't want to deal with that. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> well, the challenges of a, a collections person. And what would you say has been your favorite or proudest um, achievement in your work? Aside from thawing a freezer full of <laughs> alligators. Uh, I was really proud to work on the blue whale, actually. That was pretty amazing. That was when I was only part-time and sort of volunteer to go out there to help dig up the blue whale on Prince Edward Island in 2008. Um, that was pretty amazing to sit in the rib cage of a blue whale um, and have to throw out all my clothes afterwards because it smelled so bad. <laughs> and my fiance at the time still became my wife, so she came out with me as well. So it was, a, it was the first time to PEI and everything. So just being part of that from the beginning was, uh, really rewarding and it's the focal piece of the beauty, right? So it's good to see. And then uh, having been able to see live blue whales uh, in 2015 was pretty amazing. Where did you see those? Uh, I, was, I got to be a volunteer on a DFO, um, Department of Fisheries Oceans, um, cruise to go search for cetaceans, marine mammals out on the coast for a couple of weeks. Uh, with John Ford and his crew. And uh, I actually roomed with Larry Pinn, uh, who's a, a reporter at the Vancouver Sun. So I had to be careful with what I said. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he actually spotted the blue whales first. So it was pretty amazing to see them fluking, just such giant animals. Which ocean? Uh, Pacific Ocean, just off like, our coast here in BC. It sounds like an, uh, an experience of a lifetime. Yeah, it was for sure. It made me realize that uh, I didn't want to do field work studying marine mammals. Studying dead ones is fine, but it's just so much work for so chancy data, right? You're out there looking for these giant things, but in a much more giant ocean. And it's just so much work to get enough data to study them as well. It was amazing. Don't get me wrong. I was on the deck the entire time. Which was crazy. So I thought burying the... Uh... The skeleton was supposed to remove all that grease and all that uh, smelly stuff. Uh, if it didn't, how did you get the stench out of the whale skeleton? Um, well, I, like I said, I, I didn't do it, but um, Mike DeRoos, who was in charge of articulating, he built giant, disgusting hot tubs and um, basically simmered it away um, using a bioenzyme solution. And then they that ended up degrading the bones and then 
they had to basically build a giant vapor degreaser, which they used to um, clean engine parts of like jets and helicopters and things. But he built a big one for the to basically suck the the grease and things out of the bones. Um, I do that on a much smaller scale at the museum, where I use things like peroxide or ammonia to on small skulls of reasonably sized mammals. <laughs> I love how um, in the everyday world, museum is almost a synonym for boring. But when people peek behind the scenes at stuff like that, uh, creating a, a vapor chamber to degrease a, a blue whale skeleton, it's really, really exciting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's amazing the things that I do in my job, actually. I love my job. I wouldn't ever give it up, I don't think. But um, yeah, it's just you don't think about that when you're seeing the public side of most museums. It's like a diorama here and there, but um, tons of work went into creating all those taxidermy pieces and things like that. And quite often in most museums, unlike the Beatty, which has the, the collections you're walking through, most museums have those buried in back rooms somewhere that only curators get to see. So just the, the sheer amount of specimens that's in these natural history museums is incredible. And, just the diversity of work that you can do with them and on them and to create them in the first place. Absolutely. What are you working on right now? Um, so yesterday I had the first visit of the UBC student um, dissection and anatomy club, or might be the reverse of that, uh, come in and they uh, skinned a bunch of wolf and coyote heads that I have from uh, various... Uh, ministry projects and things like that most of them were salvaged but some of them were trapped and things like that so i had them come in for our regular weekly prep day which has just returned from a covid hiatus uh, where we have students and other volunteers coming in to prepare specimens so that's the most recent thing i've been working on um but i'm constantly working on pacific martin skulls um, for my masters so um i'm attempting to differentiate morphometrically so what the shape of the skulls and things um the two species of martin that are found in bc using 3d photogrammetry and traditional like linear measurements as well okay so like you take a 3d scan of the skull yeah. 3d scan using a digital camera and it uh, the software puts together this 3d image of it and then you can um, compare the shapes in 3D as opposed to uh, like a two-day photograph. Um, so you get more data and you can figure out the subtleties of the shape differences between the two species. And I'm hoping that, still working on it, I've been for, this is my third year on it now, um, that um, that fine detail of morphology will be able to determine where the two species meet in BC and possibly if they're hybridizing and where they're hybridizing. Just basically tease out their ranges of where they live in British Columbia. How many skulls do you have in the collection? Uh, Martin skulls. Martin skulls. Say. So there are thirteen hundred and eighty-four currently. <laughs> um, when I first started, there were four hundred and seventy-two. So I've added a substantial amount, um, and I just got a load of another hundred and seventeen, I think, from Vancouver Island. So <laughs> there's there's a lot. Uh, I think by the time I'm done with my master's, there'll be over 1,500 skulls in the collection. And those are mostly from either trappers, because they're still pretty heavily trapped in BC. It's 
probably the most lucrative of the furs in British Columbia. Um, quite sustainable, actually. Uh, or from salvage, from road kills, or um, just found dead for whatever reason. Right. Um, I picked up a few off the road in Vancouver Island and in the interior of BC every once in a while. So. 1,500 skulls, right in time for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, quite a display in your front yard. But <laughs> Now, you mentioned that um, you do some collecting yourself. You know, you're just driving down the road and you see a, a Martin um, body. Uh, you'll collect it. Um, one of my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing about people's field stories. Um, I've never gone to the field myself, but it seems like this magical place where crazy things happen and it's just supremely entertaining uh do you have any field stories either from the field itself or uh your regular field work in the collections uh that you'd care to share yes so as part we don't really i don't do that much field work uh, in my masters i get specimens brought to me um most of the field work that i end up doing is part of my cross collection so i collect for in entomology so i'm sort of an amateur entomologist um so I end up going to BioBlitzes and uh, helping the uh, entomology curator um, collect uh, aquatic insects mostly, but also some terrestrial things. And I really like collecting them in poop. Anyway, you get weird things that show up there. And I should say entomologists are, are bug scientists. Yeah. <laughs> All the insects and things. I always forget that I'm, uh, I just let jargon roll off my tongue and it's uh, when you get used to talking about something. So I got to go on lots of bio blitzes and things, which is where you go for 24 hours and try to catch as many species, identify as many as you can. Um, so up at Whistler, Karen and I were uh, in a bog searching for corixids, which are water boatmen or back swimmers uh, or any other aquatic insects. And uh, we walked in and I'm like, huh, there's lots of bear sign here. That seems pretty old. But it's only... And it was up by the where they did the biathlon for the Olympics and things up uh, uh, in Whistler or near Whistler, I guess, south of Whistler. And uh, I'm like, well, there's fairly old bear sign. I think we'll be fine. But there's only one way in and out of this little bog that's surrounded by trees and um, swampy areas and things like that. And as we're coming out to hop over the stream, um, that is the only way out. Uh, a similar colored uh, black bear stepped um, around from the bushes. And uh, it was probably about a meter and a half from me. And I went, ooh, did a Homer Simpson kind of scream. Ugh. And I was like, hey, bear. Meanwhile, Karen's like, what do I do? What do I do? In the background, I held my net. It's a big aquatic net. It's really big in front of me. And I was like, just keep going that way, bear. And I was trying to remain somewhat calm, but affirmative as well. And he didn't care at all. He didn't even bat an eye. He looked at me, looked back down, just kept walking to where I think he went and slept for the afternoon. But, um, and I've had several encounters with bears, both in my backyard where I grew up and in Whistler several times. Um, but that was the closest and most startling for sure. Um, yeah. And it always seems to be when I'm with Karen. <laughs> if I were you, I'd have taken the uh, the cue from the biathlon track and uh, bolted the other way, but that probably wouldn't have been the best decision. <laughs> so I'm curious. Um, I know your work's important, but how would you explain its importance? 
my best argument for why it's important is um, in this day and age where we seem to know like so many things about science um, and technology and every, every, all the amazing things that we do, um, we still probably haven't even uncovered a tenth of the species on the planet. And lots of, even in science, it's considered butterfly collectors and things like that. But uh, how are we supposed to like protect things, first of all, if we don't even know what's there? How are we supposed to um, utilize things like so many people want real world applications for what you do? Um, evolution has been creating life forms for so long they've probably figured out every problem that we could possibly imagine and these multiple millions of species all have a different way of surviving so both from a selfish point of view that how can it advantage us we should know about all of these and just from understanding the planet and being able to protect things and know what things are there it just makes museum work because museums often find new species just buried in their collections that i just think that we need to find out what's there both for our own good and the good of all of those things and your role in particular at the very end you touched on it um museums often find whole new species in their own collections because uh, previous generations would just collect and collect and collect but never actually go through what they'd collected um which is the less glamorous work. <laughs> and now we're playing catch up and um, putting our heads down. And uh, the uh, BD has actually discovered new species in, in its collections, right? Uh, I believe so. Um, there's definitely been, I don't know if it's really discovered within the BD, but there's definitely been cryptic species that have been split apart that we've had in the collections and things like that. I don't know of any instances where there's an actual new species that was discovered in the BD, but plenty of other museums find them all the time. Uh, usually those paleontology museums. <laughs> They're a mess. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely possible. Like even medium-sized mammals, the um, that raccoon relation um, was discovered in a museum that it was there, but they thought it was the other one because it looked exactly the same. There's it called the Olin Mito or the Olin Mito? I can't remember. I didn't hear about that one. It was a few years back. What would you say is your favorite aspect of your work? Uh, I think preparing specimens, actually. Um, where you get to skin and stuff things. Um, and it's not only the gruesome side of it, although a lot of it is gruesome, but there's also you can find parasites on things that, and it's interesting looking at the anatomy and um, like what the creature ate for its last meal, all sorts of checking gut contents and figuring out and um, just learning about like how does, how do the different reproductive organs look inside of a beaver or something like that. And I, I just, I really enjoy that part of it. It might sound gruesome, but the, I, I do enjoy it. And, um, it also gives you uh, sort of an artist satisfaction as well because you're basically creating a little sculpture as you restuff something and it and then hopefully it will be in the museum for hundreds of years to come for the next te technological development on molecular something or other that I've never even heard of that somebody will come and figure out that you can get from these specimens that we've had for hundreds of years. And when you're dissecting them, um, how much do you preserve? Like 
I've heard that sometimes you'll save the skin and the skeleton as separate uh, specimens, but do you also preserve the organs? Um, so normally not. We, we preserve tissue samples. So um, we take liver, heart, and skeletal muscle um, and freeze it in our minus 80 freezers for um, sampling for uh, either DNA or some molecular technique or occasionally uh, toxic analysis or things like that because that's why we take the liver. Um, but for the most part, unless there's something particularly unusual or embryos or something like that, most of the flesh of the, the critter gets tossed. Um, when we keep, at minimum, in the case of mammals, uh, a skull and a skin, um, unless the skin is too shoddy and rotting or there's some issue with it. Um, but that's ideal. And I also like to keep uh, as a complete as best uh, skeletal specimen as possible. I know my new funeral plans. <laughs> <laughs> there have been several museum curators that have done that, actually. I think there's one at the Smithsonian where he's his skeleton is standing with his dog's skeleton, actually. <laughs> <laughs> weird work make, makes a weird person. <laughs> it's true. I fully admit that I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the best part of your work. What's the worst or the most um, challenging part of your work? I think it's probably dealing with the permitting and shipping of specimens. Courier companies drive me up the wall. They're not a sponsor, are they? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just the sheer amount of paperwork in this paperless world that we have that I have to attach to send anything, especially to the United States. Um, at the same time, it's important that we have this. It's just really tedious. Like you, you need regulations otherwise it's just a free-for-all of sending um, animal parts all over the world which happens in the black market anyway but there you it is a necessity but i don't like it very much i'm sure it's just a challenge to even find the paperwork to fill out the, they're always adding something new and it's not like the person on the other end of the phone um deals with these problems every day <laughs> no especially uh, at, the, at the courier companies because it's such an unusual thing that you're like I'm sending a bunch of frozen hummingbirds to California. And they're like, what? Can you send me the hummingbird form? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a tedium, but a necessary one. Now you deal with uh, biodiversity and organisms which fill various niches. Um, and our, our human society also has uh, diversity and uh, niches. Um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your work in any way? Um, I don't. I've had the privilege of not having that affect me in really any way. Um, I guess the the most weirdness that I have is that I'm left-handed, but that's about it. I guess it could be hard to find uh, certain dissection tools. <laughs> Although with scissors, I actually use my right hand. I'm kind of ambidextrous in that way. You are a specimen worth cataloging. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like uh, your community is um, your professional community is really open and welcoming, or is it more closed off and insular? I think the museum world is just by the fact that we work in little cubby holes and various corners somewhat insular and it's sort of its own little world. But I think when you sort of crack the surface of it and get to know the people that are in it, I think we're very welcoming. We're just sort of maybe introverts too much, <laughs> standoffish. And it's, uh, it's definitely 
difficult to break into, but once you're in there, you're a member for life and possibly longer. Uh, <laughs> um, and it, it just, it's, yeah, I'd say it's a bit insular, but it's sort of like a well-knit, tight community um, once you break in. <laughs> That's a great description. <laughs> um, one thing in which uh, everyone's had to deal with this past year has been COVID. Um, now, being someone who works very physically with uh, specimens um, and living through the lockdown period, uh, how did COVID impact your work and were you able to do anything uh, while locked out? So I was one of the few lucky people that actually never stopped working on site, <laughs> at least to some degree, um, because I was looking after essential things like our beetle colonies, which need to keep being fed, making sure all of our freezers were still working and not conking out and letting thousands of specimens just rot away. Um, and just looking after the specimens in the collection as well to make sure that insects don't eat them all while there's nobody around. So I was actually coming in three times a week for the entirety of even the, the deepest lockdown we were in. Um, so I was lucky, but I was working a lot from home. And so I spent most of the year sort of tweaking the database and on a lot of Zoom calls about developing policies for COVID and things when we would return. Uh, but a lot of my work was done on the database and I got a, a bit of writing and stuff done for, for my master's as well during that time and just writing of policies and things. So a lot of desk work, but I didn't have to give up the museum entirely. So I did poke around with specimens here and there. And it gave me an excuse to feed the beetles. You have to prepare specimens. So I had to keep doing that. <laughs> Why do you have beetle colonies? Oh, the beetle colonies. So they're domestic beetles that eat. They're also called museum or hide beetles um, that clean up the skeletons from the either the birds, mammals, reptiles, or amphibians that we have. You can do it with fish too, but the fish bones are small, so the beetles tend to eat them. Um, but basically it's a colony that subsists off the leftover meat when we prepare a specimen and then they clean it up um, of all the meat and then I clean up their leavings and we have a pristine cleaned up skeleton or skull for the collections and uh, it's one of the best ways to do that in the museum world um, you can have them rot in water but the last time I did that I nearly evacuated the building so it's a great example of what you were talking about earlier, uh, using technology inspired on the natural world. You've identified a beetle which um, eats meat and you're using it to your, your, uh, yeah, your own uses. <laughs> You've painted a really interesting picture of your work. Um, what advice uh, would you have for young people who are listening to this who may want to follow in your footsteps? Which uh, courses or experience would you recommend they, they take? Look at the natural world a lot like observe everything that you see, pick up all the skulls and antlers and dead things, wear gloves if it's a bat, um, <laughs> um, from an early time and take the, the organismal um, survey type courses if you're in university where you take a mammalogy course or a, a entomology course or botany or whatever, all the other ologies that focus on a group of specific and find out what you like and what you don't like as well. Like if you um, take a breadth of those courses and you, if you can't stand mammals, then 
take a fungi course and look at that. I don't know, just looking at the, just look at the diversity around you and do the same thing with the, with courses. Just figure out what you do and don't like. It's really important. And volunteer at museums. We always want volunteers. And that's usually how, that's how I did. Got my position is to volunteer. And um, you find out amazing things about what goes on in the back rooms of natural history museums when you become a volunteer and you get into that insular community that we talked about before. People would be surprised what goes on in those back rooms. <laughs> Personally, what would you consider to be the most important course that you took? Important course? Well, the terrestrial vertebrate course was probably the most directly related to me getting a job and things like that. And it was also fun. I spent a lot of time doing field work. Um, and the diversity of fishes was also amazing. We got to do some field work out in Bamfield. And that's where I actually was exposed to the first back room of a, a natural history museum, in this case, the UBC Fish Collections, Fish Museum at that time, which was actually you had to go into a where we did the labs through a classroom and then through an anteroom. And then there was a spiral staircase through the floor to go down into a room that was just lined with jars and light bulbs, like hanging from cords and um, just creepy giant jars and awful smell because one of the shark tanks had gone bad. And for some reason, even though that's formative in my mind, it still didn't clue me in that I wanted to work in museums at that point. It took another, five to eight years before when I saw the terrestrial vertebrate course and that course to when I came back to UBC to realize that museums were where I wanted to be. Sounds like a Cold War bunker filled with pickled fish. <laughs> what do you look for when you're recruiting volunteers? What uh, qualities and attributes? Enthusiasm for sure. Um, and enthusiasm for things that lots of people find boring. <laughs> Um, I've had a few volunteers who are like, that was so boring moving those around. And I'm like, this isn't for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, like, just attention to detail. You can learn a lot of the technical things and like how to recognize species and how to organize things taxonomically. You can look that up in a book. But if you don't have attention to detail and the enthusiasm that's there, it's kind of pointless, right? Like, <laughs> you're not i guess you can teach those types of things too but if you don't have it to begin with uh, like why are you there kind of thing yeah if you're going to be miserable at, at the yeah. job um why keep coming in <laughs> so you're still relatively at the beginning of your career uh, i want you to look to the end uh what do you want to be your legacy when you retire um i'm hoping for having named a few new species at some point whether it's found in a museum or um, we have a relatively new vertebrate, uh, invertebrate curator that's uh, working on parasites, and that's got me really interested in uh, the interrelationship between mammals and their ectoparasites or internal parasites. So I'm hoping that I can at some point describe some new species um, to help with the, the millions and millions of species that we haven't yet described. Um, yeah, that'd be really neat. So you want a Chris Stinson tapeworm? <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be named after me. I want to name it something silly, probably. What's your favorite parasite? Um, I actually like the 
ecto-type parasites, so the ones that live on things rather than in them. Um, the flat flies that are on bats, they're creepy, crazy things. They're somehow a fly, but they look like some sort of vicious face-hugger space alien. Now, my final question. Um, I know with most fields, uh, a field can change at the speed of light. And um, for many people, the field they enter at the beginning of their career is completely different at the end of their career when they retire. Uh, I know it's the same for a front of house of museums, but what about behind the scenes? Do you feel like uh, collections work is changing very much? And if so, what advice would you have for young people to take advantage of those changes? Yeah, it's definitely changing a lot. Like the sort of measuring things with the calipers and rulers is changing to like 3D photogrammetry or CT scanning and things like that. And then there's all the molecular things. So um, all the DNA work and stable isotopes and all that sort of stuff that I don't even understand. Um, and it, I think it's just going to keep going more into that technologically based things that are things that you can't just see on the specimen. So getting to know how, how to do sequencing and stable isotopes and all that sort of stuff, as well as sort of the, the, the data management side of things is really important. So um, it's been in my lifetime that computerized um, databases have become the norm, right? Like when I was born in the late 70s, um, <laughs> that they were just sort of in their infancy, really. And now museums can't function without them. So having some sort of um, bioinformatics databasing understanding is very important in the museum world now. Um, lots of people, that's all they do is crunch the data and manipulate databases and make sure that they're working properly and georeferencing everything. But at the same time, still have an anchor in the actual organisms. There's so many people that don't deal with it and they just look at strands of DNA. I think you need to have both so that you understand the organism as well as the, the processes for managing it or understanding it. It feels like every museum I've ever worked in is always um, on the edge of just redoing their collections database because they found a new way of cataloging things or something else that they missed um, and they have to start from scratch all over again. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Um, we're, we've gone through what? three iterations, I think. And that's not even counting the different versions of FileMaker that we've had. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's constantly changing and we're, we keep trying to make it because we were all disparate collections that came together and we're slowly coming together more and more on the data side of things. And versions go out of date, so then we have to update it. And is that really what we want to do? And we revisit it all the time and then we don't have the money to do it. And yeah, that's... The museum world is chronically underfunded um, and you just make do, right, with what you have. That's what a lot of it is. And yet for such a young museum, the BD is only 10 years old, um, it really does function, or at least from the outside, uh, it seems to function as one cohesive unit. And I think a lot of that's because um, people like you have done so much work on the back end, uh, helping these collections um, work together and not fight each other. Well, that's very flattering. <laughs> um, well, I try to, that's, I'm basically cross collections liaison between people and trying to 
get that to happen. And it was really hard before the BD, like all the, the parts of the BD were in existence all, as long as UBC has been in existence. In some cases, the like specimens much longer, like from the middle of the 1800s kind of thing. And sort of bringing us all together in one space was not enough. It, you have to come together in how you're going to function as well, not only in physical space. And it's just, even though the museum's young, <laughs> um, it, yeah, it has a lot of history and a lot of uh, compartmentalization about various things and little silos of different collections that were independent for so long. So it was, yeah, it, it's, I think it's great the way we've come together though. And, um, it's not always perfect, but we were working towards it. And I think that, um, the, the key that I think all of us are is that we want to protect the specimens and we want them to survive way past that. Great. <laughs> and again, I think it's been successful from my perspective. That's good. I, I, I think so as well. Um, yeah, I think we're, we built something great over at the BD, really. And I had a small part of it. But <laughs> Chris, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything you want to add before I let you go? Um, I guess there was, I think there was something about a discovery or something, wasn't there? Yes. Have you made any discoveries that you care to share? Um, so on one of the bio blitzes, not that it's new to science or anything like that, but, uh, in one of the Alpine lakes up on Blackcomb, I managed to collect a new record for BC and Canada of a caddis fly, uh, Desmona mono. It was the first time that genus had ever been recorded in Canada. It's not surprising. It's down in Washington and Oregon. Um, but uh, it's one aspect is like, it just looks like every other caddisfly that you see, a little round case made out of caddisflies are aquatic insects that built a little case. They're the larval stage. And then they hatch out and fly around. They look a little bit like a moth. But anyway, this one was... Uh, uh, first Canadian record, first BC record in 2014, I believe, up in the Alpine Lakes of Whistler and Blackcomb. And so if I didn't collect a whole bunch of different caddisflies from that lake, we wouldn't have even known it was there, right? Ah. So it's that's one reason to collect a lot of insects. People always ask that question about why do you have so many? And it's because of things like that, where you can have a species that looks exactly the same superficially until you look at it under the microscope and you find out that it has extra gill rakers or extra appendages here or different hair on its head or something strange and it's um, always um, always something new can be found even in your backyard where we think we know everything and do you think it was found here because of climate change or just because we're doing more field work i think it's probably in that case because it's so close it was probably just it hadn't really been sampled before, but there, it's not outside the possibility that climate change had something to do with it because it's creeping further north. Which is, uh, but again, that's an it's an alpine species, so no, of course not. Either one is possible, but it's probably more likely it was just not sampled there. Well, Chris, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, did I miss anything, or is there anything you'd care to share? No, I think that was great. It was great talking with you, Gano. Thanks for sharing your creepy-crawly knowledge and <laughs> enthusiasm. And um, thanks for sitting down with me today. Hey, 
Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.